Chapter 9, Part 3 of History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries by S. Cheatham. Chapter 9, The Church and the Empire, Part 3. According to Rufinus's version of the sixth canon of the Council of Nicaea, the bishop of Rome had entrusted to him the care of the suburbicarian churches. What we are to understand by these suburbicarian churches is by no means absolutely clear. Considering, however, how closely the ecclesiastical followed the civil divisions, it is extremely probable that the suburbicarian churches are those included in the ten suburbicarian provinces which were under the authority of the vicarius of the civil diocese of Rome, and which included the greater part of central Italy and the whole of lower Italy with Sicily, Sardinia, and Corsica. And this interpretation is strongly confirmed by the letter of the Council of Sardica to Julius, Bishop of Rome, which recognizes him as the official channel of communication with the faithful in Sicily, Sardinia, and Italy but many causes tended to extend the authority of the Roman Patriarch beyond these modest limits. The Patriarch of Constantinople depended largely for his authority on the will of the Emperor, and his spiritual realm was agitated by the constant intrigues of opposing parties. His brother of Rome enjoyed generally more freedom in matters spiritual, and the diocese over which he presided, keeping aloof for the most part from controversies on points of dogma, was therefore comparatively calm and united. Even the Orientals were impressed by the majesty of old Rome, and gave great honor to its bishop. In the West, the highest respect was paid to those sees which claimed an apostle as founder, and among these the Church of St. Peter and St. Paul naturally took the highest place. It was, in fact, the one apostolic see of Western Europe, and as such received a unique regard and the tendency to regard Rome as an ecclesiastical center and standard was no doubt increased by the fact that in the provincial civil courts of the empire, matters not regulated by local law or custom were decided according to the law of the city of Rome. Doubtful questions about apostolic doctrine and custom were addressed certainly to other distinguished bishops, as Athanasius and Basil, but they came more readily and more constantly to Rome as already the last appeal in many civil matters. We must not suppose, however, that the churches of the East were ready to accept the sway of Rome, however they might respect the great city of the West. When Julius of Rome, who refused to concur in the deposition of Athanasius, invited him and his opponents to appear by delegates before a council of the Western Church, the Orientals assembled at Antioch declared that he, a foreign bishop, had no right to propose himself as judge in the affairs of the Eastern Church, that every synod was free to decide as it thought best, that the mere fact that he was bishop of a great city gave him no superiority over other bishops of apostolic sees, that his predecessors had never ventured to interfere in the internal affairs of the Eastern Church. But, in spite of this rebuff, the disputes about Athanasius, in the end, undoubtedly tended to strengthen the position of the See of Rome, which sided with the orthodox and victorious party. The Council of Sardica, after the secession of its oriental members, gave to bishops who were aggrieved by a provincial decision leave to appeal to Julius, bishop of Rome, 
meaning no doubt to give to those who were oppressed by Arian synods a protector in one who was a steady friend of orthodoxy. But the precedent was not forgotten. A generation later, at the request of a Roman synod presided over by Damasus, the emperor Gratian issued a rescript permitting in many cases an appeal from provincial tribunals to the see of Rome. But the decrees of provincial synods were still regarded as binding. Pope Siricius himself, when appealed to against the decision of a synod at Capua, declared himself incompetent to entertain a question already decided by competent judges, and Ambrose, speaking of the same matter, urged that the decision of the judicial committee nominated by the synod was of the same binding force as that of the synod itself. The authority of the Roman see increased from causes which are sufficiently obvious to historical inquirers but the greatest of the Roman bishops were far too wise to tolerate the supposition that their power depended on earthly sanctions. They contended steadfastly that they were the heads of the church on earth, because they were the successors of him to whom the Lord had given the keys of the kingdom of heaven, St. Peter, and they also contended that Rome was, in the most emphatic sense, the mother church of the whole West. Innocent I claims that no church had ever been founded in Italy, Gaul, Spain, Africa, Sicily, or the Mediterranean islands, except by men who had received their commission from St. Peter or his successors. At the same time, they admitted that the privileges of the sea were not wholly derived immediately from its founder, but were conferred by past generations out of respect for St. Peter's sea but the bishop who most clearly and emphatically asserted the claims of the Roman see to preeminence over the whole church on earth was no doubt Leo I, a great man who filled a most critical position with extraordinary firmness and ability. Almost every argument by which in later times the authority of the see of St. Peter was supported is to be found in the letters of Leo. If the power to bind and loose was conferred on all the apostles, it was through St. Peter that it was transmitted to them. It was to St. Peter that power and commandment was given to feed the flock of Christ, and it was in Rome, the place of his burial, that the power given to St. Peter was in all ages to be found. So far was the Roman bishop from receiving dignity from the capital of the world, that it was through his presence that Rome became what it was. He conferred honor on the city, but the city gave no dignity to him. It was in the name of St. Peter that he, Leo, presided over the church. It was as God and St. Peter prompted him that he gave judgment. He called on the other bishops to help him in the care of all the churches, but the plenitude of power remained his own peculiar attribute. If, however, St. Peter appears in the forefront, Leo does occasionally bethink him of St. Paul, who was, he admits, a partner in St. Peter's glory at Rome, though he was much occupied with the care of other churches. Generally, however, from about the middle of the 5th century, St. Paul is but little spoken of in connection with Rome. The Empire of the West never seriously interfered with the proceedings of the Roman bishop, and when it fell, the church became the heir of the empire. In the general crash, the Latin Christians found themselves compelled to drop their smaller differences and rally around the strongest representative of the old order. The Teutons, who shook to pieces the imperial system, brought into greater prominence the essential unity of all that was Catholic and Latin in the empire, and so strengthened the position of the See of Rome. 
the church had no longer by its side one great homogeneous state. The Gothic kings were not inclined to meddle with the internal affairs of the church. Odoacer, indeed, issued an edict that no election to the papacy should be held without the sanction of the civil government. But Theoderic laid down the golden rule, little regarded in after times, that he could not exercise sovereignty in matters of religion, because no man can believe upon coercion. And Theodahad held that as God permits diversity in religion, it would be presumptuous in a king to attempt to enforce uniformity. The East Gothic dominion in Italy was in fact in more than one respect advantageous to the popes. The kings of the Arian Goths were disposed to befriend them because they were generally in opposition to Constantinople, while at the same time the Catholic people of the West honored them as their rallying point against the incursions of Arianism. It is not wonderful that under these circumstances the claims of the popes increased and multiplied. They claimed to be the highest court of appeal for the Western Church and to have a general authority in matters of faith and discipline over the whole Church throughout the world. In support of these claims, they appealed to imperial edicts and canons of councils. They were as anxious as ever to ground their claims on the privileges conferred on St. Peter, but they could not always avoid an appeal to the civil power. In the disputed election of Symmachus to the papacy, both he and his rival Laurentius appealed to the Gothic king Theoderic at Ravenna, who placed Symmachus on the apostolic throne. But, consistently with his principle, he allowed an edict of Odoacer, ordaining that no election to the papacy should be held without the concurrence of the civil government, to be annulled in a Roman synod. The partisans of Laurentius, persisting in their charges against Symmachus, another synod, the Synodus Palmaris, was held in the following year, which acquitted Symmachus, or rather expressed its reluctance to try a de facto pope under any circumstances. Enodius, the official defender of this council, frankly laid down the principle that the occupant of the see of Rome could be judged by none but God. It was probably about this time that forgery and interpolation began to be resorted to with a view of giving to these claims some appearance of antiquity. The acts of the supposed Council of Sinuessa, which desired Pope Marcinellus, accused of sacrificing to idols, to judge himself, as being alone competent in such a case, are no doubt a forgery. So is the constitution attributed to Sylvester and Constantine, which declares the Roman see above the judgment of any human tribunal. So is the supposed report of the trial of Sixtus III. Cyprian's treatise on the unity of the church had been altered to suit the views of the Roman see before the time of Pelagius II. It was at this time, too, that the Roman bishops began to claim the title of Pope, which, however, for some generations, was also given to the incumbents of other apostolic sees. But the popes still admitted that they were subject to general councils, nor did they claim jurisdiction over other bishops, unless they were brought before them as the highest court of appeal. So long as the Roman see agreed with them in hostility to Constantinople, the Gothic kings were willing to allow them a large measure of freedom. But when the popes came to an agreement with the see of Constantinople, they became much more suspicious and watchful of their movements. John I having, contrary to the traditions of his see, paid a visit to Constantinople, where he was received with the utmost distinction, was on his return regarded by Theoderic as a traitor and thrown into prison, where, after languishing for nearly a year, he died. 
the kings also interfered actively in the elections to the papacy, and even nominated the person to be elected. Theoderic nominated Felix III, and Athalaric issued an edict against bribery in papal and episcopal elections. Still, even so, the Gothic domination was not so perilous to the papacy as the restoration of imperial rule, which followed Justinian's conquest of Italy. Justinian, it is true, paid great respect to the see of Rome, but he paid like honor to that of Constantinople, and was not unwilling to use one against the other. His object was, in short, to extend his own power over church as well as state. Pope Silverius was deposed and banished by desire of the Empress Theodora, Vigilius installed in his place by command of Belisarius, and when Vigilius, after a miserable life, sank into an unhonored grave, Pelagius was elevated to the sea by command of Justinian, an appointment so unpopular that the new pope was actually unable to induce three bishops to take part in his consecration. In many ways the popes were made to feel the bitterness of dependence on the Byzantine court. They were forced into heresy, or what seemed to be heresy, and on this account a large part of Italy withdrew from their communion. The sees of Milan and Ravenna were reconciled after a comparatively short interval, but that of Aquileia was more resolute, and it was not until the year 698 that it re-entered into communion with Rome. The dependence of Rome on Byzantium was brought to an end by the Lombard invasion. The dominions of the Greek Empire in Italy were thenceforth limited to Rome, Ravenna, and a part of southern Italy. This province was governed by exarchs seated at Ravenna. The authority of the emperors declined in Rome and passed almost insensibly to the popes, many of whom were very capable of sustaining it. The Byzantine sovereigns being often too weak to defend their distant province, the Italians had to defend themselves, and at their head in this struggle was the Pope of Rome, the person of highest dignity in the city, the natural protector of the Catholics against the Arian Lombards, and the greatest landowner in Italy. For the estates of the sea had been growing since the time when Constantine permitted bishops, as such, to receive gifts and legacies, and were in the sixth century of great extent. The prelates of that age appear to have been good landlords, and to have spent their revenues freely for the public good. For twenty-seven years, says Gregory the Great, the popes had lived in the midst of Lombard swords, and all that time their income had been drawn upon for the clergy, the monasteries, the poor, for the wants of the people generally, and for defense against the Lombards. As was natural, the see gained infinitely in dignity and influence, and became, in matters ecclesiastical, less and less dependent on the Byzantine court. Under the influence of many causes, the See of Rome had risen to a great and unrivaled position in the West, and at the end of the sixth century the way was prepared for Gregory the Great, with whom a new era begins. It must not, however, be supposed that the views of the Roman bishops as to the authority of Rome were universally accepted even in the West. Many churches had grown up independently of Rome, and were abundantly conscious of the greatness of their own past. Milan, for instance, a great city and the chief town of a civil diocese, always maintained a certain attitude of independence towards Rome, and the authority of so powerful a prelate as Ambrose contributed greatly to render its see practically patriarchal. The see of Ravenna, too, from the time when Honorius, fleeing from the Goths, made that city his capital, was not disposed to acknowledge in Rome a supremacy in ecclesiastical matters which it had ceased to possess politically. 
and in the African church the reluctance to submit to Roman dictation, which had showed itself in Cyprian's time, was maintained for many generations. In the Pelagian controversy, the Africans firmly opposed Zosimus of Rome, who had taken the side of Pelagius. And when the same Zosimus tried to compel them to reinstate a deprived presbyter, Apiarius, who had appealed to Rome, they were reluctant to obey. In vain he appealed to the canons of Sardica, which he quoted as Nicene. They rejoined that the canons in questions were not Nicene, and admonished the bishop of Rome to proceed with more moderation and equity. And when Bishop Celestinus a few years later again urged the restoration of Apiarius, they most emphatically repudiated his authority, and forbade, under pain of excommunication, any appeal to a foreign bishop. They begged the bishop to consider whether it was probable that God would grant to an individual a power of correct judgment which he refused to a synod. But the course of events broke the spirit of the African churchmen. Their country was overrun by the Arian vandals, and in their distress they were glad to cling to such support as they could find in Rome. They were not disposed to dispute the claims of Leo the Great as they had done those of Zosimus. In Gaul, too, there was a vigorous resistance to the jurisdiction of the See of St. Peter. The See of Arles, which was really ancient and claimed to be more ancient than it was, constantly asserted metropolitan rights, which were acknowledged at Rome. One of its most famous bishops, Hilary, felt himself strong enough to resist even Leo the Great, and refused to allow a sentence passed by himself and his provincial synod to be reviewed at Rome. In consequence of this contumacy, Leo withdrew, so far as in him lay, the metropolitan privileges of Arles, and obtained, for he did not refuse to use the secular power when it was on his side, the famous rescript of the emperor Valentinian III, giving an emphatic supremacy to Rome over all churches, and enjoining provincial governors to compel the attendance of bishops who might be summoned thither. Practically, however, these proceedings do not seem in the end to have had much effect on the position and authority of the See of Arles, and when the Franks came to be rulers in Gaul, the power of the popes in that country was much weakened, for the bishops were compelled to pay more respect to a liege lord close at hand than to an ecclesiastical superior at a distance who could not protect them from him. Similarly, in Spain, after the conversion of the Gothic king to Catholic Christianity, the Archbishop of Toledo, supported by the civil power, was able to assert a large measure of independence for his province. The British church, isolated by its position, seems to have had from the first a very loose connection with Rome, and after the withdrawal of the Roman troops, scarcely any. End of chapter 9, part 3